You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 62 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. In this episode, we are pleased to have Carson Black return to the show. Carson first joined us way back on episode 17 to talk about primatology and the beginnings of her master's thesis research. We are very excited to announce that Carson recently graduated with her master's degree and are happy to have her back on to talk about her thesis research and her continuation into a doctoral program so congrats 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 are in order carson how do you feel now that you have have the ma it's actually it's an ms but i i feel chris ms how do you feel to have the ms (laughs) (laughs) it's good it's it's a huge relief it's been an exceptionally difficult couple of years but i'm happy to be done it was a good experience but i'm glad it's over with do you feel more secure about yourself saying I have a master of science than a master of arts because I'm insecure about it for sure? Not really. <laughs> I know that's like a thing between like different programs. And I also, I have a BA in anthropology despite doing a lot of biology and a lot of lab mm-hmm. work when I was in undergrad. So I'm, I am going to toot my own horn a little bit and say it's a master's of science. Go for it. Yeah. Cause it's like, I have, I'm a scientist and my Instagram says it. I'm a little thing, but I have a bachelor of arts and a master of arts. I feel weird, but it's weird how they determine what, anyway, this is your podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how that works actually. My understanding, it's just a language requirement because I have a BS in anthro. And then when I got to Wyoming for my MA there, Bob was like, Carlton, you need to take uh, Spanish in order to get the masters of arts. And uh, that's all I know is the difference between a master's of arts and a master's of science is I have a basic understanding of Spanish <laughs> and I can get you to the biblioteca. See, no, uh, I, I did the same thing, though. I was hanging out with like 20 year olds as like a 26 year old taking like Spanish three or something like that. Yep. I'm the old man in the corner like I'm, I'm here. I'm getting my master's degree. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. It sounds like your your degree was a uh, BS, though, Carlton, to be real. Um, so. Thank you, Connor. Uh, <laughs> so, Carson, obviously some things have happened since we had you last on. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll start off. Uh, did you end up doing any field work for, uh, as part of your master's research? No, it was, I did finish on time and I defended and graduated on time. But field work came to a grinding halt I was kind of naively hoping last March because the last time I was on this show, it was like days before I was about to propose my thesis. And that was like days before the world turned on its axis. And we were kind of hopeful that it would kind of like come and go. And, and that is not at all what happened as we have all witnessed the past year and a half. And field work was a no-go. I received funding from the university and they said, if you try to take this money and use it for international travel, we will take it away from you. And so it was, they were really hard on the no international travel, no field work. And not just for me, but even for friends and colleagues that were doing work at zoos or sanctuaries. I mean, everything was shut. Mm. So no field work. But you still got done in two years. So that's actually kind of incredible. Did you have to do most of your classes like remotely? Yeah. I assume you weren't doing it in person or anything like that. No, I, uh, I went home at the beginning of quarantine. I went back to Wyoming thinking again, like, oh, this, this will be a quick thing. We'll ride it out. And that is not at all what happened. So I ended up staying in Wyoming for five or six months and came back out to do my last year here and establish pods with friends. But I was lucky in the sense that people on my committee had connections to the site that I was going to be at. So I ended up working with an existing data set and ran all of the analysis start to finish. I just missed out on doing it myself, the collecting part. But that's awesome that you were able to work with an existing data set, that you were able to use a readily available data in order to finish your thesis and get out on time, where in many other instances in graduate school, mm-hmm. you know, COVID has severely 
delayed students from graduating. And as my understanding, at least at, at Colorado, has created a funding nightmare. Oh, yeah. I had, I had reached out to someone at Boulder about their PhD program. And she was so sweet and was like, yeah, funding funding's really rough right now. So I probably can't take a student this year or next year. A lot of universities got hit really hard. We have no incoming students this fall yeah. and we don't know about next fall. And they had to cut a lot of students off for the past five years. They're oh. finally like, we, you should have been graduated by now. We apologize. Get out. It was a weird year for PhD applications in general. A lot of places were like, we may accept one student per subfield, but we don't really know yet. And a lot of places were like, we've been given our usual funding, but we've been given the choice to like bring in a new cohort or continue to fund our current cohorts a little bit more. I had only reached out to one university that was like guaranteed accepting the same amount of students that they always have and funding. And so. Excellent. And you got in. Yeah, it was a really stressful couple of months, though. <laughs> but that's 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 a, that speaks to your ability as a master's student and probably oh, and I thanks. imagine so your thesis research that in, you know, uh, as, as those can attest to, like getting into graduate school is hard enough. And then especially yeah. when the resources are far more strict and the opportunities are far more few that you're <laughs> able to come out on top is definitely awesome. Thank you. So, I very, appreciate very that. Awesome. And so uh, you did mention that you spent a couple months out in Douglas, Wyoming. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and last time we talked, you you had mentioned that you were volunteering at a primate sanctuary. Was that correct? Yeah. So Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest is an accredited facility out here in, in Cleelum, Washington, caring for 10 chimpanzees. And as part of my degree program, there's this wonderful agreement where Students in the primate program can intern at the sanctuary for three quarters, and then they become certified in captive primate care. And you get to watch feedings, you help with enrichment, you, you're mostly there to clean, and it's wonderful. The people that are working there are fabulous, and the chimps are fantastic. But because of COVID, I didn't get to finish like the in-person component of the certificate, because as we saw, like with the San Diego gorillas that tested COVID positive at the zoo, it's very easily transmissible and very early on. The team out there was really concerned of the student body, like students from the campus still coming out and working there. And so we did not have any in-person anything the entire school year. We did a lot of side projects for them, though. The interns got together and we did magazine drives and fundraisers. We did this big brewery event and an art contest. And so we helped in other ways and they're getting ready to bring six more chimps in this summer. So the family's growing. Awesome. So you can transmit COVID-19 from humans to chimps. And That's the I guess thought, I'm going to ask yeah. if, does it affect them as severely as humans? We general, would like to not find of- out. <laughs> My understanding with the COVID gorillas or not with the co- with the San Diego gorillas that got COVID, they were given like one of those monoclonal treatments, I believe. And and the whole troop made a full recovery and none of our chimps tested positive. Thankfully, they've been on bare bones staff for the past year, essentially. The thought there is, is that it can be very easily transmitted. Even working out there, they say, like, if you have a cold, if you even have the sniffles, like cancel your shift. You can come in another day because we are just so genetically similar and their immune systems are not like ours. And so it's harder for them to bounce back from something like the common cold or COVID. And so to, to just, you know, take matters into our own hands and rather be safe than sorry, they've been operating on a very small staff since last March. What happened to the, and this sounds funny, but like the COVID gorillas, it sounds like a, like a horror movie, but like, I know they caught it somehow. I don't know if they ever found out definitively how they contracted it. The thought was that maybe there was a, a keeper or someone that came into contact with them that was asymptomatic. Cause when the gorillas started showing signs, that's, that's when the zoo was like, oh no, we might have a problem here. But I, I can't speak to the details. I, I, only remember hearing that they had had it and then they made a full recovery. I'm not sure if they did anything specific otherwise. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I remember seeing that on. This is a good Google search for those who are listening. 
Google Google search and, and DM us. Um, I'd be interested to see how they uh, they ultimately reacted because they're obviously social. You know, mm-hmm. they're primates. They're very social. So I wonder how kind of reducing the interaction between the caretakers and mm-hmm. and the chimps really affected them, or if it didn't, and if they just didn't didn't give a crap and we're probably happier <laughs> without us. It'd be, it'd be a cool study. Yeah, but. definitely. Someone should do that for their master's thesis out here. It looks like they vaccinated some of the, uh, Oh, the interesting. Gorillas. I hadn't heard that yet. Yeah. Government's going to track the gorillas now too. Um, was going to, I bet you get but, 5g signal yeah. next to the gorilla. I was going to say the 5g, the 5g is strong <laughs> with us. If they're gonna gonna waste the money to track us, why would they waste the money to track gorillas? Therefore, just get the freaking vaccine. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Listen to science. Um, so, <laughs> right. <laughs> Speaking of, you are wearing a shirt that says Pan or yes. Pan. I guess we want to be Latin about it. And then Primate Awareness Network. Yeah, this is our our student club out here. Okay. Do you want to talk about that? It was a hard year because we had to do everything virtually, but we had some success with Skype a scientist outreach initiatives. Again, we we partnered with CSNW and did fundraising and brewery activities and stuff like that. It's it's Primate Awareness Network, so that it spells Pan, which is the genus for chimpanzees and bonobos. Awesome, yeah, that's cool. Wait, hold up, hold up. Pan troglodytes and Pan paniscus. Yes. Nailed it. There we go. How was Skype a scientist? How did that go? Uh, it could have been better. <laughs> it was um, it was hard to coordinate and like keep. <laughs> keep in touch with teachers adequately. And, and it was hard to kind of balance because we were trying to do it like in small groups where people could like present in pairs. And it was just logistically, it was a mess of a year, but we, we did really well for a club. We also have this really amazing palm oil initiative that we're trying to implement. And we are pushing the university to be a palm oil sustainable only campus in the next couple of years. Two things to unpack there. Yes. Let's first go back to Skype a scientist. Now, were you primarily working with like elementary school kids or were you able to snag some of the more older, older kids to talk? We had talk a to? lot of youngsters from what I remember, like a couple kindergarten, first grade, I think maybe third grade or fifth grade tops. The last Skype a scientist I did was with an elementary school out in Thermopolis <laughs> and they were kindergartners. And that was the last one I did because I just couldn't do it anymore because that was doing Skype a scientist on like with all the kids on their own. God bless those teachers. Yeah. Hashtag yeah. save the teachers. That was rough. And then the second thing, and I, which is highly important, why is this palm oil initiative A, important and B, how does it relate back to primates? Yeah. So this is a good question. Palm oil is this resource. It's like really, it's really, really heavily extracted and it's primarily found in habitats of orangutans. And it's in everything. That's the problem. It's in sodas, breads. I mean, look in your shower and just look at your shampoo bottle. It probably has palm oil or some other like very fine oil in it. The extraction methods are really harmful to the environment in part because of deforestation. And you're also destroying all this habitat. But the issues with palm oil is that you can't just come in and say, okay, no more palm oil. Find something artificial to replace it with. And leave it at that because palm oil is also a really important resource for certain families across the globe. It, you know, mining it and working and extracting it keeps food on the table and a roof over their heads. And so the push to be a sustainable palm oil campus, I don't know the exact details of like the differences between palm oil and and sustainable palm oil, but the, the sustainable is obviously a little bit more environmentally friendly. I think it the extraction, like the, the sustainability side of it, I think really puts the people first. And so it's not those big companies that are like running the show and calling all the shots, but it's, it's harmful in primate habitats, especially for the orangutans. And so trying to be more sustainable and eco-friendly, there's only a couple universities that are even trying out this model. And so far we've got like all the permissions and the permits are in order. And we did a lot of work with the inventory list that the university gave us. And so we literally went through everything that the university purchases food and drink wise and did research to find, is it, is there palm oil in it? Is it sustainable? Is it registered with this company? And so it's, it's been a a huge success and we won an award for it. The club like came away with an award at the end of the school year. 
That's amazing. A really powerful, cool. I think, advertisement I think I saw. It's it, it's kind of a poem you can find on YouTube. It's like there's an orangutan in my bedroom. Yes. And it starts off with a little girl coming into her bedroom. There's an orangutan making a mess. And she's finally in a British accent like, you know, why are you here? And then it goes to like a nom flashback from the orangutan's mm -hmm. perspective. And it's like there are humans in my forest. And it goes black and white. And just it's it's deep stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to add the, the Red Ape documentary is also really powerful. We watched that in one of our anthro classes kind of shows the process of the of, of destroying this habitat and mm -hmm. how it affects orangutans so i would recommend that and on that super somber note uh, i think we're going to end this segment <laughs> and we'll uh, catch you in segment two welcome back to episode 62 of a life nerds podcast we're interviewing carson black for the second time our good friend from uh wyoming i guess is where we met you but you went off to washington to do your thesis research primatology can you enlighten us as to what that was, or I guess the audience as well? Yeah. So my thesis looks at what factors of fragmentation are influencing the howler monkey gut microbiome at a highly fragmented site in northeastern Argentina. Howlers are a really great model for studying the microbiome and like the related health effects of it because they are they're deemed lazy primates, but they're so important for ecosystems and they're really crucial for forest regeneration and they're easy to study. And so they're easy to track. They're easy to stick with. They're easy to collect data on. And they they sometimes act as sentinels of ecosystem health. So we can detect outbreaks in them before anything jumps to humans, which, as we have seen, is really important to understand in an ever changing global system. Yeah. Fragmentation, you're referring to kind of changing of rainforest areas mm -hmm. and maybe death and renewal of some areas? Yeah. Like, like roads are really big in fragmenting forests, right? Yes. Roads, lots of agriculture, specifically in Argentina. There's been a lot of land clearing for cattle production. Argentina's big in the beef industry, as well as, you know, various other global globally demanded crops, you know, your bananas, all your fruits. And, and, and at my site in particular, I say my site, I didn't even get to go. It's, it's experienced a lot of selective clear cut logging around the entire station. And so it's, it's highly, highly fragmented. I wish I could show a map right now, but it, it's, I mean, groups are entirely separated from each other and, and primarily because of roads and, and the agriculture around, but it's, Fragmentation is like the, the literal like pulling apart and destruction of natural habitats that are then kind of they form like little forest pockets. And so you can have like one fragment in one area and another fragment in another and it's separated by human altered land cover. And I guess for the non primate and I guess interested non primate inclined audience. There we go. <laughs> the non the non simians. Howlers are alawada, right? Is yes. the genus? Mm -hmm. Okay, so they, they're like the ones you would find like around the Maya and the as like in Mexico mm -hmm. and jungles and stuff like that too, right? Okay. Yeah, they howler yeah, monkeys have they the loudest. Gee, I wonder. <laughs> they are they are the loudest animal on the planet. They could rupture a grown man's eardrum if they were to like howl right in your ear. Really? Yeah. Like louder but, uh, than like a whale or something. Yes. That's cool. Hence why they're so oh, easy to track. Not. I don't know if you can measure whales and 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 howler monkeys in the same sort of venue. I think there's a there's a different medium that they're moving through. I just imagine someone pulling a whale out of the ocean and putting a microphone up to it, and then someone taking a howler monkey and just dunking it in a bathtub. Speak. <laughs> All right, moving past it. Anyway, I was just trying to get the audience familiar with what we're talking about, but they uh, are a like. They have a big long tail. Uh, they do swing from trees, kind of monkeys. Yeah, they um, they they have prehensile yeah, tails, so it really acts as like yeah. a fifth limb, and they they're known to like hang from this prehensile tail in like their feeding time. And infants, baby howlers, will like gotcha. dangle from their tail and like wind themselves up really tight, and then let themselves go like kids on a swing set. It's really funny to watch, but they have the largest Whoa. geographic range of the tropical primates. So they extend all the way from Mexico down through the northeastern part of Argentina. And that's why they're such like a huge proxy. Like yeah. You're, you're saying because it, they, they're so ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. 
Very cool. And very flexible. They're really resilient. That was something I really emphasized in my thesis was this, this uncanny ability to be resilient in the face of mass forest destruction. They are still thriving for the most part. They, they adapt really well in large part due to the really tough foods they eat. And, and that segues nicely into microbiomes and what the microbiome is. So the, the easiest way I can put it is, is the microbiome, and there's lots of different microbiomes, but it's the assemblage of all the microbiota, all your microbes. So it's bacteria, fungi, viruses, protozoa, and they make up all these various body niches. So, I mean, your skin has a microbiome, your gut's got a microbiome. And these are seen in all living things, animals, humans. And, and there's even recent research suggesting that like the environment in soils have microbiomes. And so I was trying to make a connection between increases in forest fragmentation. Like what are we going to see downstream at the microbial level from these massive impacts that we can see at a really big global scale? So I, and I looked specifically at the gut microbiome because it's, it's easy to look at. You take fecal samples, you preserve them in ethanol, and then you can do all your sequencing with 16S ribosomal data. How do you collect fecal samples from like tree swinging primates? Are you down there with like a giant Tupperware container following <laughs> them all day? You know, I, I, I can't answer it because I didn't get to do my own field work. I do know I have a friend who worked with uh, free ranging orangutans and he was collecting urine and like just held an inverted umbrella up to catch it. So I imagine fecal samples are maybe a little bit really? easier. A Life and Roads podcast, The Secrets <laughs> of Science Revealed. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because I'd imagine they just found it on like the forest floor, but I guess then it's contaminated or something. Well, that's the thing. So, you got to be quick. Yeah, so when you're tracking right a group, you got to get it like immediately so that it's not too contaminated. You don't want bugs. You don't want like extra environmental things if that's not what you're measuring. And there's like some interesting relationships between dung beetles and howler monkeys in at, at other sites. So, okay. So this is going to be like a really crappy question, but um, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> uh, pun intended. Is there like a time during the day where it's your your data collection might increase significantly? Say when howler monkeys wake up in the morning. Yes, you nailed it. Yep, first thing in the morning, and they, they will often like sleep. They will often <laughs> they will often like sleep and defecate at the same tree sites. Sounds a lot like my 2020, but anyway. <laughs> I thought, thought you were going to say sleep and defecate at the same time, and I was like, oh yeah, my God. Like, that's why that was props. Before we continue on, the- I'm so oh. sorry. This <laughs> yeah, started with that. the Tupperware comment, and we just kept going. I this feel is like fascinating this, stuff, this has Carson. to happen, so though. If we're, we're talking about poop science. Like, you got to have the right joke, so I respect We got to keep people interested. Yeah, there you go. I have cut, this is going to, it's a weird segue, but I have cut open human bodies and I have cut open animal bodies at Tennessee for, during my undergrad. But my girlfriend at the time was doing like samples on gorilla feces for her, I think, ecology project. And I would much prefer to stick my head inside a dead deer and or human than smell two week old gorilla poop. It was the worst thing I've ever smelled. <laughs> Um, so I don't know if you got to work with samples at all, but it was, I did not get to do any of bad. like the physical processing and handling of the fecal samples in the lab. It was a 2017. Oh my God. I've been looking at this project for way too long. I don't even remember now. It was a 2017 data set. And so everything had already been processed and analyzed in the lab, but okay. the, the professor that was sitting on my committee, she's like the primate gut microbiome person. And I love her tremendously. She's fabulous. But when we were discussing like what data set to give me, she was like, you know, I could like make this easy and send you everything like as it is, cause it's already been sequenced. And I could just like give you the sets so that you can immediately start doing your stats. She's like, but that wouldn't be any fun. And the mentor in me says otherwise. So I got to like do all the command line bioinformatics coding on my samples and sequence the DNA and like see it happening. It was really cool. And I ended up really that liking really the cool. bioinformatics part of it. So I'm hoping to expand on that in my PhD. My, my next question with that was going to be like, how, like in essence, did you get the data to work with? So I guess you kind of answered that right there. Um, cool. 
So we shared through like a cloud sharing ability so that I had access to them. She had access to them. And I just, I, I moved them around using this cool thing called CyberDuck and, and just pulled everything and, and was working on the command line, which I had never done before. It's wildly oh, cool. intimidating. Yeah. It's like a website. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> Neat. So there's like an element, element of programming involved as well. Yeah. And a big learning curve. So there's obviously an element of time to what you're, you're studying. Mm-hmm. Did you have two different samples that you were comparing and what were the time periods in, in between them? Oh, no, I had like 50 some samples. I think the tally ended up being 53 total that we sequenced and compared and ran stats on. Yeah. And so I, I had to like extract all the DNA information first using the command line. And I had to like send the sequencing command off to my university's supercomputing cluster. So I was like remoting in, running code and sending it, sending the job to the supercomputer. And then I'd get the information back and would like extract information and tables and stuff from there and then ran everything in R. Wow. R is also intimidating. R is so intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Fun when Um, you get the hang of it, but also a very big learning curve. I wouldn't be able to say because I never got the hang of it. But <laughs> you had a bunch of different samples. Is there like because you wanted to compare them? Do you have like a an existing data set that you were comparing them to, and what was the the time period in between? You know, the two samples to to ultimately get your comparison. So we worked with just one data set, and we were just comparing like groups within that data set okay. against each other. And I don't even know the group number okay. off the top of my head, but okay, we were sure. comparing things like between groups based on certain factors that we had set and parameters okay, that okay, we that had agreed sense. on. Yeah. So imagine like when you're dealing with fragmentation and how these howler monkeys are responding to environmental like stress, the populations that you were using to compare. I mean, I imagine geography was a part of it, right? Like they were different mm-hmm. populations of of howler monkeys in different parts of the forest that had different proximity to human induced Mm -hmm. fragmentation. Okay. There's been, and this site has been really well established for several decades. Dr. Martin Kowalewski is the one who runs it. He's like the primary field investigator. He's wonderful to work with. He came to my defense and I was outrageously honored. I couldn't believe it. And he's, he's been running this site for a very long time. And there's been a lot of health research and a lot of gut stuff to come out of these howlers. And so it's, I mean, these groups have been really well monitored for a really long time. They have a lot of family history. They have a lot of information on these monkeys. And so it's, I mean, my data set was just one like tiny thing compared to this wide array of things they've done. And it's, um, it's cool research. It's a cool site, but it, it was a hard year in part because I didn't get to go do my own field collection. But then as I was coming back to Washington at the end of August, the site burned. So in like late August, early September, a fire came through. The thought is that people were trying to clear land for cattle. And it was Argentina's hottest year on record in nearly a decade. So climate change kind of fueled these fires. And as we saw, like with the Pacific Northwest last fall too, and California, Wyoming, Colorado, I mean, it's fire is not to be messed with and it should be taken seriously in the context of climate change. So half the site burned early on in the fall. And then another fire came through a month or so later. And at the time it was right as the fall quarter was kicking in again, I was trying to kind of figure out what we were going to do with data. And they estimated at the time that only 10% of the park hadn't been burned. And there were several howler groups that were unaccounted for. And although Dr. Kowalewski in my defense told everybody that the most of the groups that I had sampled and that I had used for my project were accounted for. So, but it's, it's, it was a really devastating year. Yeah. So I think all around. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, was. That's brutal. Yeah, it was. It was hard, and and then I grappled with, well, how do I do a, how do I do this site justice? Because I felt almost guilty, like using this existing data set, and it was like this feels wrong to be asking questions about monkeys at a site that like might not even be there anymore. But but what I ended up researching kind of segued segued nicely into what their current efforts are down there and in monitoring like 
post-fire regrowth and how howler monkeys are so resilient. They're, they're some of the first species to come back after a devastation. And so tracking those groups as they come back and monitoring new babies, new groups. So yeah, it was a rough year for this thesis. <laughs> In the end though, I, you had just mentioned defense. I guess, can you define for the audience what a defense is? And then, you know, how, what was your experience with that? I remember mine being extremely relieving. Yeah, mine was too. Um, so I actually did two defenses, kind of. Your first year in this program, they have you do a thesis proposal defense. And so you present the thesis like with your lit review and your proposed methods. And it's more of a formality to do it for the proposals. The The big show <laughs> that I just recently did a, a couple of weeks ago um, it's much more professional. It's it's really a time to be like, look, this is what I did. This is exactly how I did it. And you defend in front of your committee that has worked very closely with you on a project and, and has seen various drafts upon drafts of it. And and it's a time to like present and, and say, yeah, look at what I did. Look at look at these howler monkeys and how cool they are. And my defense was actually a lot of fun. I was nervous, obviously, going into it because anytime you're like presenting something that you did on your own, I think it's a little like, oh man, I, yeah, I did all of this. And suddenly I was second guessing. I was like, do I even know what my stats mean? Did I even run the pipeline? Who knows? And it all ended up totally okay, just like everybody said they would, said it would. It was fun for me because it was on Zoom, which I think is such a testament to how this year has been. But it was it was cool because <laughs> all of my parents were there, my grandparents, aunts and uncles. I had cousins in England tuning in with like little glasses of wine because it was dinner time wow. across the pond. And and I'm, Todd Suravel came. I mean, it was just like all these people that I love and respect and admire so much. Friends and professors. I mean, everybody came. And it so it, it didn't feel like there was a lot of pressure writing on it. It felt more like I'm giving a very fancy presentation to everybody I love about what I do. And that kind of took the edge off for me. But I, I don't remember the defense. I remember starting it and I remember ending it. Everything in between is a blur. I just yeah. had to like pick up my guts and go. Yeah. And I, I, I'm glad there's a silver lining there for you for yeah. it to be, uh, you know, all those people got to come and they probably couldn't have flown out to see it. Yeah, know, exactly. It was in person. It was fun. And I slept like a rock after it was done. Good. Yeah. I tell when I present, you like start talking and then you just black out and then yes. you're like, all right, it's over. And in like that situation, this session is over. I don't know what I said. And <sighs> we'll come back in the next one. Welcome back to episode 62 of a life and ruins podcast talking with Carson Black about primatology and other crap, so to speak. We wanted to plug, in the future, there is going to be an article with all her conclusions from her research, and it'll be coming out at some point. We'll have it on our social media and, and share it when, it when it does come out. But we wanted to kind of transition to talking about your experiences at Central Washington University and what are kind of some of the big things that you took away from grad school? Oh, man. Well, first and foremost, lean on your people. I discovered really quickly that people make the experience and I've found some really remarkable friendships that I really cherish out here and I'm aching having to leave this state already. And also a good thesis is a finished thesis. It does not have to be perfect. And I had to kind of coach myself about that and be like, it's, it's going to be done. It's going to be turned in and that's all you have to do. It does not have to be a perfect five-star, like ready for publication out of the gate thesis. And since we were just talking about stats and R, I'm learning very quickly that it's always good to be learning stats and just be on top of the tests you run and what they mean. I am still working on this. I, I am preaching to my own choir here. And also that breaks are okay. This was not something I think that was emphasized as heavily as an undergrad, but your mental health in academia should be nourished and cherished. And so taking a break when you need it is okay and should be welcomed and celebrated rather than thinking, oh, I'm so lazy. I have so much to do. Like, no, you need a break. You're allowed to give yourself some rest. Yeah. You've earned it. I think all three of us would agree with that pretty wholeheartedly. Yeah. As Carlton says it with a faded look on his face. <laughs> 
I'm almost done, man. I can see the finish line. I just need to crawl on my hands and knees. I was saying to my advisor in the weeks leading up to my defense that the light at the end of t- at the end of the tunnel was a train. Yep. You know what? I can. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that. I've never heard something more accurate. Um, my my tag at McDonald's is going to say Doctor Assistant Manager, <laughs> Professor of Anthropology. Doctor to the Assistant Manager. Yeah, Doctor to the go. Assistant Manager. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to mention just just because we talked about R. I think uh, we always get questions about what people should study and what what skills they should learn. I think R is huge. R is so huge, I, and there's other statistical programs. R is not like the end all be all by any means. I mean, there's there's SPSS, there's Java, Python. I mean, there's so much you can do depending on what kind of data and what kind of stats you want to run. But I think our, at least like our studio is a little bit more user friendly and there's like wide open forums on Google with our stuff. I mean, people are just like creating packages for funsies. Like people, there's people out there, there's grad students out there that are like plugging in packages and writing code and and transcripts and, and um, I will not ever be one of those people, but I like running the code. (laughs) <laughs> but but yeah, R is super important. And I wish I had exposed myself to more stats earlier on in my career because I was stressing doing my data analysis. I felt like I was flying blind. I was lucky I had a lot of help <laughs> from my professors, but it, it was it was not a pretty start. SPSS is what the devil's demi demons use to keep track of all the torturing in hell. <laughs> My advisor would wow. say otherwise. Um, he loves SPSS. <laughs> oh, I that's what it. I learned. Our studio for me. Then I switched to R. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I get a lot of uh, DMs about like, you know, what classes should I take and, you know, yada, yada. To those people that ask me that, I would say, now that Carson has brought it up, if you can take in your undergrad and in grad school, if you can, a coding or a programming class Agreed. will infinitely help you do science later on. Agree. And that way, when you're doing your thesis, like Carl Carson and I, yeah, like you're not scrambling. You're not also trying to learn that. <laughs> yeah. You're not running around like a chicken with its head cut off, crying over your stats. Yeah, precisely. And to the point where you don't understand it enough that Dr. Randy Haas is like, I got it. <laughs> it just does it for you. <laughs> But anyway, we'll continue on. Dude, uh, Eric Robinson made me cry in his office having me work out the code for my thesis. And he just would not give me the code. He was just like, no, you'll learn. And wait, I learned. I learned those seven lines of code. Thank yeah, you, was, Dr. Robinson. You hit like three buttons and then it was it was fine. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. I mean, I, and, and for those. Conversation about stats. Okay, moving on. I was going to say, uh, so R is an open source uh, mm-hmm. program that you can do a bunch of different crazy stuff in. So those yeah. aren't, that are not aware of, and it's, it's free, right? I think it's, yeah. so yep. go, ch- go check that out. Kind of moving on. Did you ever have any difficulties with like, you know, getting financed or, you know, getting your research on track to graduate? Not entirely. I learned very quickly. Grants are hard. Grant writing is very tough. No two grants are the same and formatting is a pain in the neck. But I, I think if, if anything, I just struggled like with what, what to do with finances because my field work was canceled. And so I had to kind of get creative with how to use the money. I was like, okay, we paid for like this cloud service and we did this, this and this. But I did learn pretty quickly that like funding and research support is very, very competitive, especially like with larger, like the NIH grants or the NSF grants, um, NSF GRFP, that's the graduate student and NSF grant. And it's hard. I mean, it takes practice and, and even like great grant writers have a hard time, you know, securing funding year after year after year. But, and even like as a master's student, you're not typically funded, but I had an assistantship, so that helped a little bit too. I think all of us had one, right? At some point, I was fully funded the day I set foot at Wyoming. That's that's right. Because that engine blood. All right. Uh, (laughs) What I was going (laughs) to say with that before (laughs) before that outburst was, if you are going into grad school, you may not get fully funded immediately, but there are like pools of funding eventually where you, you know, if you're a good student and you like. Not that you behave yourself, but you don't like, you know, 
mess up, uh, you can either become like a teaching assistant or a research assistant. Connor and I were both the curational assistant at one point. And it's yeah. fun. It's experience. Yeah. And it's good. These are good questions to ask uh, potential advisors and mm-hmm. things like that. There's different avenues for, for funding. Like, like David mentioned, there's, you know, working with uh, at Wyoming, it was working with curation. You could work at the state historic preservation office. Yes. There's, there's lots of opportunities and those are really, really good questions to ask, um, you know, folks going into advisors or anything like that. Yeah. And if you're also, if you're going to apply to programs and stuff, it's good to ask the professors that when you're looking around for schools, but also like when you visit the school or if you know of people that go there, talk to the students about Mm -hmm. like the culture and how that works and what their experience with the assistantships are. Cause it could be, you know, terrible situation. It could be a great situation. So speaking of terrible and great, Carson, how overall was your graduate experience? Cause I could say had some of my favorite days of my life in grad school, but then I could also say I had some of the worst. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I concur with that statement. I absolutely agree. And it was a weird year too, because I was like living at home for six months because of the pandemic. So I missed out on half a year living in Washington anyway. And Mm -hmm. we only had like a, we only had a few months on campus before everything hit the fan. So I, I had kind of an unconventional experience, I would say. But even despite that, I, I would agree. I've had some of the absolute best moments of my life living here and being in this program. And I've made a lot of great connections and I'm, I'm coming away with a lot of tools in my toolbox, if you will. But yeah, it's also, it's been a really grueling two years. I mean, it's, I remember being on the phone with my advisor once and being like, does anything ever work out with a thesis? Like, does anything ever go the way you plan it to? Mm. And she was like, no, this is science. (laughs) But she was great. I had a really wonderful, supportive advisor. I had a really wonderful, supportive committee, but my advisor changed my life. and, And it's been a really good experience out here. I'm good. I'm glad to hear it. Absolutely. What has been your fondest memory of graduate school? Oh my gosh, there's so many good ones. There was my birthday party this year. There was my defense. But I would say, I, I think if I had to pick one, I would say last October, I liked these friends I was making. I liked these people so much that I let them talk me into going camping, like in a tent in the middle of October, in the middle of a forest in Washington state. And if you know Washington weather, it's not like the middle of October is the warmest time of year, the best time of year to go tent camping. But we loaded up the car and we went and pitched our tents and did Leavenworth Oktoberfest last year. And it was just the most fun. We only went for um, two days and one night, but we hiked and we drank beer and we ate good bratwurst. And, and it was just, it was such a it was such a fun experience because I had never done anything like that. And it it was just, it was such a fun, fun memory, even though I am convinced I nearly lost my toes that night. Yeah. It sounds like off the cuff camping trips are pretty common in grad school. Very much so. Connor took me out in February in Wyoming. uh, (laughs) Oh, that's even worse. (laughs) To to go camping. Yeah, we didn't end up spending the whole day. The people that were at the same campsite were like in campers with like the lights strung up, you know, and they like drove up past us and they're like, are you seriously camping in tents tonight? And we were like, yeah, (laughs) we're all like all excited, bright eyed and bushy tailed. And they were like, yeah, good luck. It was very chilly that night. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. David and I almost died in a, in a cave that we thought we were going to stay in and, Vedavu in, I think it was January or something stupid. (laughs) Yeah, my birthday's in February. So it was, there was snow falling and it was the mountains of Wyoming and we decided to go camping for some reason. Say no more. Uh, But it was also a a great experience, but wouldn't recommend it. So you also applied to a a PhD program during this time. I applied to three. You, oh wow! How, so how did that experience go? Going, especially trying to finish a thesis and 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 all that. Oh kind my of gosh! Stuff First of all, time. whoever decided that grad school applications are to be due at the same time as finals week and like the end of quarters and semesters—that was a bad idea. It was really stressful trying to wrap up my 
fall quarter and like coordinate flights home. And I mean, there was COVID, like really awful COVID numbers at that time. And dang, so it, it was just like one thing on top of another. And out of all the applications, except for one, I mean, there was no guarantee that there was going to even be funding. And I had really good relationships with all of the advisors that I was applying to work with. They're all three brilliant, badass women. And I would have thrived under any of their advisement. But yeah, it was, it was a strange year for applications. I had a lot of friends that applied and, and didn't get in just because of how messy funding was, depending on which university you were applying to work with. And, and primatology already, I think even anthropology more broadly, is so specific and so small that like any spots and, and positions are really competitive and really limited. So it was an emotional roller coaster, yep. needless to say. <laughs> yeah. All that, like, cause you're first off, writing your thesis is one, finishing it, defending it, and then also applying to grads. That's like a whole thesis in itself. Cause you got to write letters of intent and mm-hmm. you got to fill out all stuff. You got to do your GRE. And then you had a pandemic. Carson, I applaud the <laughs> shit out of you. Cause that, oh, thanks. <laughs> that is a lot of work. Yeah. I would have cried. Oh, uh, I, I did. did. Many times. I did. <laughs> cool. I'm glad. I'm glad it wasn't just me. Then. No, not just but. you. So many panicked phone calls to my advisor and my mother and just like, I can't do it. I can't finish. And and it feels like that. I think pandemic or not, there reaches a point where you're like, I'm, I can't do it all. I'm not going to make it. And then somehow it's done and it's over with. And you never got COVID, I guess, uh, that you told us. So Mm-mm. I was lucky. Good. And I also got vaccinated. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, everybody. Nice. I think we're all vaccinated here, too. <laughs> yep. Carl, I was going to say, come on, guys, help me out here. Uh, <laughs> do you um, do you have any, uh, not that you have any last words, that would be ominous. Do you have any final thoughts for the, uh, <laughs> for the audience? Sorry, I can't speak today. Like more and more specifically, if there was one, a couple... Th- like one or two pieces of wisdom that you'd pass on to anyone seeking oh, to go to graduate school. Mental check-ins are good. Counseling is okay. I went back to counseling this year in part because of the pandemic and also in part because good. academia is hard and, and it's, it can weigh you down. And, and so checking in with yourself is, is okay and should be welcomed and, and celebrated again. But I would also say like, if you really, really, really want to do something pandemic or not, like, just make it happen. I love what I do. And it's been a really hard couple of years. And there's been a lot of moments where I was like, what happens if I don't get into a PhD program? What happens if I have to move home again? What happens if I stay in Washington instead? And so I think like perseverance and and it sounds so cheesy, but I'm, I I like to think of myself as resilient, like my howler monkeys, because I did it. It was not easy. I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of my cohort. And we will persist. <laughs> I love therapy. I've been going right? ever since it's I started great. my PhD program, and it is the best thing on the planet. Now that I've like, I been in it, have, I have I probably like, survived last year without it. Yeah, yeah, I I got back into it in large part because of you know pandemic anxiety, and and I like won't go into my PhD without it now. I just always want to be able to fall back on it and do check ins, and and I think like the the stigma behind it is kind of being un packed a little bit more, but in academia, I think mental health is so, so crucial and taking care of that should be celebrated. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wise words from Carson Black. I, <laughs> I think we could all agree with that. Yeah. 100%. So Carson, before we end the show today, what are a couple sources you'd recommend for anyone interested in primatology or howler monkeys? Oh man, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin has a great network and sources for people looking for field work or job positions. Think of books, anything by Jane Goodall. Gosh, what a loaded question. I could just go on and on and on. John Flegel's Primate Adaptation and Evolution, third edition. It's my Bible. Unfortunately, David has imposed a uh, ban all Jane Goodall books. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot about this. Oh, my gosh. I can't yeah, believe I yeah. agreed to do this again, David. Damn it. S- strike that from the record. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to DM slide Jane Goodall and just show you guys that we're friends. <laughs> we, we are not proud of her for winning another award. We're not. 
We don't enjoy any of our success. So that's the official stance of a Life in Ruins podcast. No, that's David's stance. That's, that's David's, David's stance. stance. Remember, everyone, this is specifically David. David's got beef with great. Jane Goodall. She is a... She's I don't know. She's a little shady. Terrible person. I'm just kidding. Oh Carson, uh, not to put you on the spot, but if you... <laughs> she's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Not, if you can't think of anything, like all of them right now, just shoot us like a text or an email and we yeah. can throw them into the show notes. They will be down um, below for our listeners, all of Carson's recommendations. You can find them. And we can also, I'd love to do another collaboration post with you at some point. Speaking of, where can our listeners find you on social media? I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. And I think you guys may have my handles already. Can you say them for the it's audience? At, so Twitter is just at Carson Black and Instagram is at Cars Black underscore. Okay. I'm on LinkedIn too, but I still don't really know how to do it. LinkedIn is. Have you weird. made an academia profile yet? On LinkedIn? No, academia.edu. Have you made one of those profiles? Oh, I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, I still haven't done mine either. I don't, <laughs> does it matter? Good to know that I, I have sorry, some more women. If you don't, if you don't have yeah. it done yet, I certainly don't need to have it done yet. So. My, yeah, my my LinkedIn profile is still like my fraternity portrait from like undergraduate, oh, where it's like it has not been up. I'm going to go find Carlton right now. All right. Yeah. And we, so we just interviewed uh, <laughs> Carson Black. You can find her on Instagram at, at Cars Black underscore and at Twitter at, at Carson Black. You can find all those in our show notes down below. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast. Provide us with some feedback uh, wherever you can on Apple, Spotify, even comment on our Instagram. Just say you don't like us. It just, it's, uh, it helps the algorithm. Even if you don't like us, let us know. Uh, emails help, but like it's more better if you do it on, on you know, the platforms in which we. It's, yeah, there we go. My <laughs> my great master's degree words here. Bottom line is, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. Just three and a half stars, make two. Just two stars is fine. Just get us somewhere. All right. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So the, the power outage at the zoo's primate exhibit was caused by a stereo. Someone used it to play Rage Against the Machine. Lights out. Gorilla Radio. Turn that sh- up. I don't get it. Lights out, Gorilla Radio. It was caused by a stereo in the primate exhibit. Hashtag remember Harambe. All right, and we're done. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.